Coming up on a really good enough parent podcast, I'm so excited to share with you some stories from my very dear friend Svenja Bunchen, a trained Waldorf teacher and the founder of the Katu Kindergarten in San Jose, Costa Rica. Svenja has taught at Waldorf schools around the world, has been responsible for fabulous child-focused community programs in various countries, including Congo, Nicaragua, Berlin, uh, is a trained Waldorf teacher, like I said, and also a parent. So stay tuned and join me in welcoming Svenja Bunchen to a really good enough parent podcast. And welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwies. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pono Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath, see your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same, and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully, you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. Today I have a guest I've been really excited to share with you all. I've known Svenja uh, since we were 18, and she has truly been one of my role models um, and just a human inspiration bomb, Um, has lived an amazing life and continues to do so, Um, and we will get more into that in a minute, but she is a trained Waldorf teacher, a parent, and an international citizen who has lived and worked in I don't know how many countries um, in Africa Asia, Europe, uh, Central South America, um, and is with us today from the south of Spain. It's late at night for her. So thank you for being here, Svenja. Hi, Christine, and aloha to Hawaii. And I'm really, really pleased to be here with you on your podcast and uh, share some of yeah of my, my life experience with you all. Thank you. Let's start with your childhood. Yes, my childhood. 
Oh, actually, I love to think about it because actually um, very often when one is being asked and how was your childhood and nowadays so many people say it was so difficult in my childhood and I, I'm feeling so fortunate because I don't really have any difficulty or I don't have any memories which are kind of uncomfortable or where I feel like, oh, I have to work through this because basically my childhood was very simple but very simple in the sense that it was very, very natural, very beautiful, very free. And most of it, which I remember, is play, play, free play on the street with other children. And I guess most of the things which I have uh, uh, learned in my life and all communi uh, communicational skills and limits in life is from other children. I think I really have learned a lot from being with other children and basically our parents in those times, they trusted that the world was okay and that we would do all right and um, they let us explore. And um, I guess this kind of trust has stayed with me all my life. Yeah, I, I, I hear this a lot from people my age that, you know, our free childhood atmospheres where we were able to sort of go out all day and no one was tracking us and no one could find us if they needed to really and that we were out exploring the world and exploring social relationships was such a gift and I'm wondering I guess maybe we can talk about this later um, how parents now should be able to navigate that um, given all the things that are going on and all the new awarenesses and all the rules I guess but mm -hmm. um, maybe we put that on the table for later. Um, we have uh, done this podcast a few times. This is our third try now. And in a previous uh, recording, you talked about traveling around with your dad. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. Um, one of my, my memories, which are really strong, uh, uh, were um, traveling, around, um, traveling around with my father, uh, who was very adventurous. My parents were really young. And uh, when I was born and um, they, my father at one point, I was about seven or eight years old, decided to buy a motorcycle and to go through the whole of Europe, but really very uh, unusual countries like Albania, uh, when it was still possible at this point and well, Turkey, wherever. And I accompanied him and um, it was just the greatest memories, you know. We didn't have really a lot of money or something where on camping places. And I would meet a lot of other children and I could never communicate in language with them. But you just got along, you know. And I, I saw so much of the world and I saw many things, many people. And I guess this has really um, shaped me a lot in my life also, interest for other cultures. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely stayed with you as a mom and as a professional person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talk, I'm listening. Um, yes. Um, I uh, Later on in my life, I have uh, lived in uh, various countries. I uh, My children are being grown up in various countries and... Um, it has been, yeah, interest in children have been always a great part in my life, really, really important. And I think one of the main, because we are, the subject is 
a, a really good parent or how do we become really good parents, I really think one of the, one of the issues to just really look at it right now is uh, how can we observe our children? How can we meet our children or can meet any child, actually, any human being in his own being and not trying to... Um, uh, make them like us. I think this is one of the biggest questions I have and I think things I would uh, do differently today and I'm very um, fortunate that um, now when I'm uh, one is a bit older and has more maturity and has seen more in life that I really have understood that um, raising children is really, really trying to get to know the other person, trying to get to know who's in front of me and observing this person, who really is it? And um, being in different countries and being abroad, particularly, has given me many opportunities to take a really close look at my child, at my children, because we always had to uh, reinvent our whole family life. We always were being put into new countries with new languages and every uh, new languages, new cultures, new schools. So one had to look every time. How do the children, how do we adjust to it? And yes, it was really fascinating and interesting to get your children this way because not one single moment was the same. I love that. And just to give some context, if we could back up for a second. So you were born and raised in Germany. And later on, we'll talk about how a really big part of your life was or what the change sort of came around the time you were introduced to Waldorf as a high school student, and you've mm -hmm. dedicated your life to Waldorf education since then. And in addition to that, your husband uh, is was a diplomat, and so you and your two children and your husband moved um, how many times throughout their childhood? Oh, God, many. I don't, I haven't even counted it. <laughs> Many. Yeah. And you lived in Congo, you lived in Hawaii, yeah, my, you lived in Berlin, Barcelona. Five, five languages, yeah, basically. Yeah. So, and right. So, I raising think. children are with lots of change, lots of moving around the world, different schools, even different languages is what we're talking about. Yeah, it is. Um, it's really, you know, it, it is a challenge. And as, as you said, I have uh, lived, uh, I was raised in Germany, but then uh, afterwards I lived in Hawaii. So that's uh, for many years. And then I've lived in many other countries. And as you said, and uh, my children were also born uh, not in Germany. They were born in Central America. And um, so, uh, yeah, you start to learn a little bit what is actually a culture? What is a human being? What are the influence from the outside? What are cultural influ influences? And also, what are heritage influences? And what is, you know, what all those kind of different components which are in a human being? Because the most complicated structure uh, in, the, uh, in nature, or let's say the kingdom of nature, is the human being. It is so complex, you know, and it's so unique. And that makes it so fascinating. And that's why I'm, I'm really thinking working with children and being with children is one of the greatest chances for personal development. Yeah, and you've definitely taken that into a wonderful direction. So along the lines of your story, before we get into more detail about 
um, child pedagogy and mm. child rearing ideas. Um, you trained in England, you lived in India for a while, um, and now you've started a kindergarten. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I am. I have been a Waldorf student in the high school, and it is correct. Once I entered, the, um, I was in a normal public school in Germany uh, um, when I was uh, uh, younger in the primary school. And um, interestingly enough, this is uh, my father has been in a Waldorf school, so I was uh, during the war, after the war, so I was second generation. But when I was younger, uh, the the schools it was really difficult to get in, and I wasn't in a Waldorf school in the beginning. But when I was a teenager, lots of problems started to become very um, visible, because I really didn't felt I was seen as a person in the school where I was. I always had to. I was in an elite grammar school where you always had to have good grades, and you were always looked upon or measured upon your grades and how you perform, but not really who are you. So uh, at this point, my, my parents, especially my father, decided to put me in a Waldo school because he was really happy being there as a child. And um, it really, uh, interesting enough, I was a teenager, and teenagers don't like changes. They don't like to go away from their friends and everything. So I did everything possible that the school would not take me. I, my parents still say today it was a horrible interview. I was sitting there, and every time they asked me something, I gave a really revolting and awful question or answer. So she said, oh, God, they're never going to take that child. But interesting enough, the school thought, oh, well, God, she's really interesting. You know, she's fighting you for not being here. <laughs> so let's take that challenge. And um, within six months, I, I felt like my life has changed around again. And I felt like, okay, I, I really found a place where I felt happy. And all my uh, friendships, my longtime friendships, all come from this time, you know. And then uh, later on, I wanted to become a journalist and study journalism, but I was too young. So I said, okay, while well, I was waiting to do journalism, I uh, will go and explore a little bit and do one year in exchange as an assistant in the Waldorf uh, kindergarten, and that was in Honolulu. And then I fell in love with the idea of Waldorf education from the point of view of understanding what it is, you know, what does it do to the children, because it's very different being a Waldorf uh, student at a school and later on to be a teacher, to know exactly why we do things. So, and then this, of course, this kind of idea uh, or the thirst for knowing more about what it is, you know, what is the foundation, what is the philosophy behind, what is the idea of life which is behind it, fascinated me. So I went to England and to study anthroposophy and world of education. And so it stayed with me all my life till I became, uh, uh, um, now right now I'm training Waldorf teachers uh, um, in Mexico and uh, other countries. But I also, uh, it's true, I founded my, uh, not to get, not me alone, but with a group of people, I founded uh, a kindergarten and a school in Costa Rica. So all my life I, I felt like, yeah, this world of education 
at least I can maybe contribute to the way how I feel uh, a child or a human being should be looked upon. There's so much in that. I want to go quickly back to one thing you said that I think was really interesting, and that is that um, you had to take a break before you could start journalism school, and that's the way it is in Germany, or at least it used to be, that you took two years off between graduating high school and going into university, two years of forced either military or civilians, right, like helping in the local communities, and you took that time to go and... Uh, intern at a Waldorf school, which is basically what then created the whole trajectory of your life. Um, so that gap year is really important, it sounds like. And I think it's important to say that just because it goes along with this idea of slowing down, breathing, noticing, not rushing through life, not being focused on the goal, um, but really taking time to look around and know things um, more deeply. And that's mm -hmm. What happened, I think, when you took that break between high school and university. Um, so the the life that you led prior to starting the Waldorf School in the the, high, the kindergarten in Costa Rica, which you're doing now, you taught at Waldorf schools in many different countries, and you did local projects in many countries while you were raising your children. And now your children have um, gone off to do their own thing, right? And so you're um, living in Spain and going to Costa Rica, Mexico, where you're training and working on the school. Yeah, that's, that's correct. You know, my, my um, children have been, um, they're now grown up. My son turned 26 yesterday and my daughter is uh, about to be 29. So obviously, well, they're always your children, but um, the relationship changes and they're leading their lives. And I am, I am still working about four times a month, between three and four times a month. I'm in Costa Rica and I'm uh, being there, uh, helping with the school and doing everything which is necessary in the rest of the year. I'm devoting my time, obviously, to the school as well, but from here. And, yeah, it's really interesting because um, one thing... Um, um, I felt in one point, which is uh, something which I like to think about very often, um, was kind of a marking point when my uh, son was very, very small. He was about a couple months old. Uh, we lived in Nicaragua. And um, at this point, I was working in the Street Children Project. And there was no Waldorf school in Nicaragua, but it wasn't really necessary to be always in a Waldorf school. You know, I wanted to do something with children or for children because my husband and I uh, basically practiced the idea. He has a good salary. We have we live very comfortably. So I'm feeling really free that I'm I'm not really bound to money. I can give my energy and my time to social projects. In this way, we felt like we're balancing a little bit out, you know, our needs and, and, and uh, what you, we receive for ourselves, but also to give back. So um, at this point, I was working in a street children project and my child was very young. And um, I didn't let my children being with uh, nannies, never. Uh, although we lived in all those countries and we had help, help in the house, I never had a nanny for my children. This was one thing I never wanted. I wanted to be with them and I wanted to raise them. So the question was, what would I do 
when I um, work in the street children project and we have to look at this. This was really rough surrounding, you know, very rough surrounding. And um, at one point when uh, uh, Julian came into our life and then um, one of the street children said to me, oh, now you have your own baby. You won't come to us anymore, right? You will uh, leave us like anybody else after a while. And it struck me so much that I decided, no, I can't do this. So I dragged my baby. I took him with me to the Street Children Project. My God, everybody, my family, really, everybody was thinking, I'm doing something really horrible. This is crazy, you know. I'm putting him in a dangerous situation. But morally, I could not do it differently. And I really always felt like, okay, he's born into this. He has this, he has this mother you know, we have to cope with this. We have to see. And the children, and I will teach the children how to deal with a baby. I will teach them, you know, how to take care of him. And I just have to trust it, that it works. So um, this was a really amazing experience for me. And it was really strong. And I felt I was really alone with it, actually, with this decision. But uh I pulled it through and then I felt a little bit, yes, it is really important once you make decisions to help somebody or work with somebody to really lead it through and not to do things only, you know, um, not to look at my needs or my help, but really go and accompany projects to the point till you can say, yes, now they can do it themselves. And this is a parenting aspect as well as a teacher aspect of how you view life yes i think it definitely is because it's a human aspect you know it is really how we look at other human beings and to to also um uh, um yeah how to how how we met, i mean in this relationship also the whole issue of trust is nowadays uh, uh I think it is a real problem. I think in humanity we have a big problem right now that we constantly uh, need to control things and think we can shape it, but we have very little trust and that things will shape themselves, you know. And anyway, how do we actually know what is the best for somebody else? It's impossible to know. You know, our aim is to provide a way that everybody can find out for himself what is the best to do. Yeah. yeah. So if you could speak a little bit about what your kindergarten that you're creating mm -hmm. or that you've created in Costa Rica and how that works with the children with that idea, what are the children who are there receiving? Yeah. Um, it's a Waldorf kindergarten and a Waldorf school in, in Costa Rica. And the school, the name of the school is Katu, uh, and I'm going to mention it because it's a uh, it's a Bribri word, which is one of the indigenous languages there, and it means um, it means um, firefly, and it means gathering place. And we actually picked this name because the uh, or yeah, it is firefly, I think in English. Um, because they actually uh, propose their own light, you know, and you don't actually, they, 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 um, the belief is that every child comes with their own light and we don't really put the light in the children, but we only help them that the light is growing and strong coming out 
right? So with this kind of sense, we are also working with the children in this way, although it's a Waldorf school and we follow the Waldorf curriculum, but we are putting a lot of effort and looking, trying to uniquely make decisions for each child, what they need in their development. For example, we don't have a discipline. Uh, how do you, how you would say it? A kind of, policy. Yeah, or something policy because it actually wouldn't apply. What one child needs, maybe another child is not good for another child because his family surrounding or whatever is completely different or his temperament. So we're trying to work very, very strongly on the observation of the children. We really observe them really well. And then in the meetings and the regular teachers meeting, which are very regular, we share our observations and we're trying to find solutions which could be possible for the child because um, we're trying to, uh, 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 because if you're many people who are looking at a child, you obviously have a much greater chance to get something objectively. This is, of course, the great advantage of being a teacher. When you are a mother, as a mother, obviously, I often failed in the same uh, exercise because you really think, oh, what would be good for me right now? And you work really impulsively out of your own or your own impulse, what you think is right, right, good. But actually, it might not be good for your daughter or you, for your son because they're actually very different. And I must say, the three best decisions my daughter did in her life was completely against my husband and my idea and will. You know, the three times she really was really strong and said, no, pay, yeah. Uh, I don't care what you say, you know, I'm going to do this and this. She made a really right decision for herself, which I would have never chosen for her. Can you share a little bit more about that? That's fascinating. Yeah. At one point, she came home when we were living in Costa Rica. And for the first time in her life, she had to be in a German uh, school. She was in a Waldorf school. She was all her life before in a Waldorf school. And it was really difficult for her to do this change because um, everything um, she was required to do um, to A-level, well, in America, what is this, GCAs or whatever, SETs, whatever you have, you know, the highest exam. And she should do the Costa Rican one in Spanish, you know, just entering uh, Costa Rica six months prior and the German one parallel. And she felt completely overwhelmed by it and felt like really stupid. So um, she came home about six months before graduation, put her back on the floor and said to me, um, I have disenrolled me today. I'm no, going, no longer going to school. I gave all the school books back. And um, uh, me just kind of, okay, you know, ready to scream. I just said, okay, I'm going to have a gin tonic or two gin tonic or three gin tonics and then we talk. So basically, I just felt like I can't believe it. And then I said to her, okay, I give you 24 hours to come up with a solution what you do uh, to get a school degree or something in the end and you figure something out, then we let you do it. If not, you go back to school tomorrow, right? Or oh, in 24 hours. So basically, and I was completely convinced she, can't, she won't come up with any answer. Obviously, she's going back to school. We have a little drama here and then she's going back. Well... She decided she goes to evening school to uh, uh, where many people were, were, were dropping out or did uh, degrees later on. 
and do only the Costa Rican uh, degree and go then in Costa Rica to university. And later on, once she has a couple of years in Costa Rican university, she could switch over to Europe. And actually, that's what she did. And she pulled it through, you know. And I never, never would have thought she would do that. Yeah, because with full disclosure, she's one of the most creative, loving, kind, and sort of natively intelligent people I've ever met. Um, but full disclosure, she definitely had a lot of academic struggles throughout her life. Yeah, she did. Um, because yeah, she did. Uh, um, had so because she's a very creative person. It's true, and she has. Uh, She's emotionally also uh, uh, in her own world, in her own intelligency, and um, she struggles with mainstream thinking, you know? And so yeah. it was very yeah. difficult for her to be in a German uh, normal school, yeah. So the point here is that, you know, a kid who comes home and says this, there's a broad spectrum of how a parent could react because if it's a child who's had like a stellar academic career and has been, you know, doing things easily, then this conversation might have gone differently. But you, my point is, were really taking a great leap of faith and really doing what you're talking about here, which is trusting your child, um, meeting your child, hearing your child. Um, and allowing your child at the appropriate age to exercise some agency um, and make plans. And it's so exciting that it worked out so well for her. Um, and as you're saying, it wouldn't have had you towed the line and stuck to the plan and forced her back to the, to the German school that she was really struggling in. And moving ahead, just so folks know, she um, did really well, finished her degree in Costa Rica, moved to Spain, right? did her master's work there and is now working in the industry, which is not an easy thing to have accomplished. Yeah, that's true. But uh, it's, it is really interesting um, how she is um, because just now uh, we had, uh, I had a second experience with her, uh, with this kind of regard, and which is really interesting, although she's much older because now in the working world, like Christine mentioned, and there's a high pressure with her, uh, she uh, realized or she had uh, difficulties with uh, colleagues because obviously nobody in university is teaching you how to deal with real work, you know. And I'm actually thinking this is also something which in schools or universities should be taught. How is the interrelationship with the people when you're working at a workplace? So basically what she did, and this was really interesting thing, just basically a month ago, um, she decided she had really problems with uh, one woman who uh, was really difficult to work with. So she basically resigned, you know. She didn't ask us as parents or whatever. She made the decision. She said, I'm not going to work there any longer. Not thinking it through, obviously, that you don't have bonded benefits anymore, uh, um, insurance and na, na, na. So she just called me up and she said, I've resigned. And I said, okay. Why didn't you speak before with me? She said, because you would have talked it out of me. And I said, yeah, that's probably right. And she said, but I had to do this. I couldn't, I can't stay there any longer. And I said, all right. So then I talked with her about it. And uh, my husband, we both talked to her a little bit about it, obviously listening to her. 
but trying to tell also why it wouldn't be maybe a good idea to solve the problems on the working place. But she said, no, I was in a bad mood. And it's also not fair for my colleagues that I come every day in a bad mood. I said, well, Carolina, this is uh, really interesting, but um, uh, it will happen over and over again. So interesting enough is she went back and she said to her boss, yeah, um, I think I have to um, learn to um, separate my private problems and whatever with the work case. I wasn't able to do this yet, not mature enough. Could I come back? And he said, no, you can't because um, this is not a game and so on. And then she's accepted it. And then she said, well, mommy, maybe I didn't do something really smart. And I said, well, who never know, you know. And even to the point that my husband said, well, actually, she has the courage to actually stand up and say, I don't want to be in this. This is also an interesting thing and also something really good to do. What happened was two weeks later, her boss called her and said, would you like to come back? Your work is so excellent, you know. So she got back in and she said, yes, I'm gladly accepting it. And they started to do a work on an agreement how they can work there together. So it's it's an interesting situation because it was for, for the second time, or actually it's the third time that I had with her this experience. Obviously, I would have reacted very differently if she would talk to me first. But in the end, that one also worked, worked out, which is amazing. And it and worked out in her way, you know, because she is different and it is she's different than me. And I cannot uh, give her, I cannot think uh, uh, give her the same advice which is really would be working for me. I have to really really learn to to think more who is she? Who is she really? What does she need? You know, how is she working? But I'm actually learning this a lot and, and I think I'm, I'm getting much better at it. So I'm also thinking uh, uh, maturity to be a bit older parent. I mean, I'm 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 not, but you know, I'm I'm feeling almost like okay, now I could start to have a little child again because I feel good enough of giving exactly the right uh, right accompaniment. So that's why I really like being uh, working in the school now and helping parents, young parents, because all the mistakes I have done and I have made and all the experience I've learned. I like to share them, you know, and say, okay, but it's up to you if you take take them or not, my my advice. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. It's amazing. I mean, I, I started later than you, but I still agree that um, I feel more and more equipped to understand other people, specifically children, the older I get. I remember one of my worst parenting moments, and I had many, um, but I had my daughter with me when I was working in um, South Africa, Swaziland, now Eswatini. And I was, um, she was about three and a half, I think. And I was in a busy shopping mall in Johannesburg with one of my colleagues who was working with me. And I decided that was the day that I wasn't going to carry my daughter anymore when um, she asked to be carried. I thought, okay, enough. I've been carrying her around all the time and it's time for her to learn to walk on her own two feet even if she's tired. So we were in a busy shopping mall and she asked me to pick her up and I said, no, you're gonna walk. And she started to have a meltdown uh, that was so epic because she was exhausted. We were in a busy place in a foreign country and you know, it'd been a tough long travel route um, for a couple of weeks and 
she just wanted comfort and to be carried and to be held and helped. And I said, no. And it was literally the worst time I could have chosen to, you know, give her that lesson because it was a little bit of a frenetic, loud, you know, over, um, over energized place. And she just screamed and screamed and melted down in the middle of the store floor. And I refused to pick her up. And my colleague who was an older woman looked over and said, you know, I, I don't really think this is the best time to be giving her this lesson. And I stood my ground and, you know, I, I worry to this day that my daughter was permanently traumatized by that and many other bad parenting moves that I made. But the point is that, that, you know, in that moment, I should really have been aware of her needs, not my own parenting agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Many stories like that. Yeah. Lots, lots and lots, you know, <laughs> but children are so forgiving. You know, this is this the funniest thing. But I'm always say to my kids, oh my God, I've been so hell with this and this. And they look at me and say, no, no, you know. So I don't know if they're just polite or <laughs> but or pain has no yes, memory, exactly. which is not true, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, who knows? So as you're talking about the, the school in Costa Rica, and I, I just want to say we're focusing on that because there's some nice takeaways, but um you have dedicated your life to working with children around the world. And um one of the many things about you that impresses me is you don't just work from a mind, head, intellectual space. You work with your full body. And I've watched you take on projects that were so physically demanding and exhausting. And I've always felt that you really stuck to the idea that you wanted to be the model, be the role model, show rather than tell the children often what was needed or op- optional or available to them, um, including really you know, grueling tasks like running marathons in Berlin with your class, you know, and creating all the posters and t-shirts for that and then actually doing it or taking a group of kids on the Camino in Spain, you know, walking the entire, uh, you know, I don't know if you did a week or 10 days with them carrying everything. You did that multiple times. Um, Just, you know, the projects you would take on often were so labor intensive. And one of the things that I think is really that I worry about nowadays is that we have so little physical interaction with each other and with our spaces and with the world that we've become so um, reliant on technology and sitting and interacting in a passive way. Um, And I know that's a big part of what you're doing at your school and what you've always done as a mother and teacher. Is there something that you want to say about that aspect of modeling for children? Yeah, I, I could do this. And um, um, actually, you know, it is, I always say, um, when we have, um, uh, when you look at a child and when uh, a young child, when I say, okay, um, I ask the parents, what is a characteristic or which, which uh, what kind of ideas come up when you think of small children, let's say especially up to the age of nine or something like this, well, we all agree, movement. A child is constantly in movement and in physical movement, constantly, you know. Children really want to move. So it's completely, if we really would learn to observe children, so I don't really know who, why, all our curriculums being made, the children constantly sit down. 
and look at the computer or do things. And that's, if you really look at a child, this is so counterproductive in a certain way or a contradiction because you really see children want to move constantly. And life is about movement, you know, physical movement, soul movement, and mental movement, you know, and everything. Uh, the question is always, how do we create movement or how do I stay in movement? And I stay in movement by doing things, you know. It is not only um, uh, um, thinking things. And the fantastic, nicest ideas don't help if you don't execute them, if you don't do them, if you don't realize them. So it's the whole process from the very beginning, from ideas, uh, creating ideas, doing them, the whole process to, um, till you get there. And I think we all had this experience very often, or I always feel like, well, an example is, for example, how awful it is if a good book ends, you know? I hate it when, uh, when I'm reading a book and then it's finished. And you go like, oh, no, what do I do now, you know? Or what is it going? And I'm always mm -hmm. feeling like, yes, there has to be something afterwards. And you're, you're doing the book, you're reading it because of the process and the joy being there. It is not to come to the end because you don't really want to be finishing it and I always think it is true it's with everything what we do it's the moment of doing the things or acting which are really important and not the aim in the end so and children it is so easy it is really one of the easiest things in the world to motivate children if children are related to nature and still can live in nature and see nature they're so easily motivated. And um, for example, we changed a lot in our curriculum that the children are a lot outside also to help to counterbalance with the technology. And um, because also our children are, uh, um, are too much uh, confronted with technology. Everybody is nowadays. And um, you really see, for example, you don't want to wear one example, second grade. It's really hot sun in Costa Rica. It's a little bit like Hawaii. And not one kid wants to wear a hat, you know, a sun hat or crocheting hat, a hat. And so I just decided, okay, very easy. Curriculum second grade says knit animals or whatever. We're going to hit, hit, uh, knit hats. So everybody knits their own hat. And I started knitting a hat for myself. Immediately I had five kids around me. Oh, it's so beautiful. I want one too. It is really easy, you know, to motivate them. And then the hard part is to let them finish it and to get through it. And then again, and not to go halfway through, okay, now they're tired, they don't want it anymore. So I think um, motivating children is easy. And then the next part is, they have to learn to accomplish the things and don't let it halfway uh, um, sit. And that's something for life in general, you know, with every task I do, because technology doesn't allow this anymore. You stop wherever you want to stop. You throw the things away wherever you want to. You don't being taught anymore to finish processes. Yeah, people who know me know that I love to talk about how I believe that ADHD, attention deficit hyperactive, hyperactivity disorder is overdiagnosed. Yeah. And it makes me uh, so sad when um, kids come here to Pono Roots and 
their parents um, share that they've been, you know, quote, diagnosed, unquote, with ADHD. And um, we see a child who's, you know, happy to focus on something interesting and yes, has a lot of energy. But I, I really feel that, you know, our expectations, like you said, that children should be able to sit for hours and hours um, and focus on a device or focus on one worksheet is really counter um, intuitive and counterproductive to children. So with that in mind, for parents who are busy and parents who um, don't have a lot of time or, or live in an apartment in a dense urban area and don't have easy access to nature, um, you know, what we're talking about is a fairly um, privileged, uh, you know, lifestyle where you can access nature and you have the time to engage with your child. And, you know, I think one of the things that we want to recognize is that having a child, raising a child is a job. It's a big job. And it is also a privilege. And so to say, oh, it's too difficult to do this, or I don't have the time to do this. um, You know, yes, occasionally people are in lifestyles or have situations where they really don't have time. They're, they're working, you know, as much as they can to just even pay the bills. So acknowledging that and understanding that there are many different ways to be a parent and many different realities for people, what are we recommending or or what are you suggesting that people can do in all walks of life with access to nature, with access to time, and then those who don't have these privileges or luxuries? What is the basic principle that we're saying, okay, if you're a parent, here are a few important things you can sort of keep in mind and do with your child to honor their level of energy and their curiosity and their need to explore the world? What would be some thoughts you have on that? Well, um, basically, you know, people really like to have always, uh, I know this is the world it is, they like to have practical ideas, practical solutions to do this. But I think the things are a bit more complicated and a bit more profound. Uh, I always say the first thing is we need to raise the consciousness and we have to really look at um, that we live in a world right now where the children are entering into the rhythm of the parents, of the adults, and not the other way around. We're giving very, very, very little, um, um, very little uh, consciousness to the fact that actually we are not very patient, we don't really are uh, with the children, and very often we don't give enough, uh, we don't make enough effort, and I think this is for everybody, and it, it's not who is um, more privileged or less privileged, but that's a general uh, thought I have. I often say to the parents um, I work with, do a little journal and write down how often in a week a child has to go with you to the supermarket, goes to the bank, goes to your friend, has to wait in the car, or does whatever things, and how often actually you do a bike ride with them or even walk around the corner and fulfill the needs the chi- uh, the needs of the child. And it's really shocking because people say, oh, no, we all do this. But if they write a journal for only one or two weeks, they suddenly realize that the children are actually completely, almost fully entering in the lifestyle of the adults and not the other way around. And I think this is one of the um, things we have to be more conscious to see how in tiny little steps we can become more aware that we 
really entering in the child's world and not the other way around, either with 15 minutes reading a book at night to them, you know, even if this means that, um, well, I do have a right to be, you know, their parents to say, but what is with me? When do I go jogging? I also want to go jogging. Well, I must say, the news is, once you have a child, for the 20 years you're with your child, it's your job to do the things to provide for your child, you know, and your needs are really secondary. I, I, I must say that. And actually, the joy comes with you once you understand that I don't anymore feel like, oh, my God, now I can't go jogging. But you say, oh, great, I have a child and I can read him a story. It's really also our attitude. If we always look at it, oh, I'm missing out at something, you know, I will be very miserable and I won't do the things and I will do everything really quick. But if I decide this is my job now for the next 20 years and I'm learning so much in this process, um, then it's a quite different story. So I'm thinking... I'm not a person who uh, easily, or I used to, give very practical advices, but I'm doing it less and less. I'm, I'm starting to being more philosophical because I really think I like that people start to think about it themselves because everybody who's starting to think about it will find a solution for themselves. I love that. I love how that backs out of the simple do this, do this, do this and encourages exactly what we're talking about in terms of meeting our children. It takes time and consideration. There are not necessarily easy fixes, um, but really this is human life we're talking about. And, um, you know, it, it should take time and there should be um, thought that goes into it. Um, and it's, I think, so true that spending time with children I, I, is important. And what I know from my um, adult practice um, treating adults in my clinic that you know the number one complaint from adults looking back on their childhood is when they felt their parent didn't have time for them and it doesn't take that much it doesn't it doesn't take hours and hours a day one study recently said that if you're just spending even 10 minutes a day with your child face to face without devices you know looking at them hearing them that that can be really profoundly impactful yeah, yeah. Let's see. Yeah. So um, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. We're going to need to wrap up mm -hmm. in a minute. But um, you didn't comment much on my um, huge um, parade of compliments about your hard work and, and what that piece is. Um, can you say a little bit about how a parent um, can work alongside their child and what that instills in the child? And I'm asking because um, I often come up against the idea from parents that um, they should tell their children what to do. The child should have chores and should be responsible to do things and um, that to do it alongside the child sort of waters down the message. And I've always felt that, you know, children do love to be productive and helpful and useful. They really derive great joy out of being part of a team and working towards a goal together um, and often also individually. Um, but that if a parent wants a child to do certain things or live a certain way, that modeling that and doing that yourself um, is really the most valuable way to teach that lesson. 
Um, so I'm wondering if you can say something about that again, because what I've witnessed uh, in you, knowing you for almost 40 years as I have, um, is that you're the first person every time you have a good idea or you have a project that you want to accomplish, you're the first one to jump in and start doing the physical work. And somehow, you know, it feels, um, it feels that you know this instinctively that the children will watch and will then be inspired to work alongside you. Yeah, I think, um, uh, basically speaking, um, you could, you should never expect anything from anybody which you wouldn't do yourself. You know, it's as simple as this. But children, and, and of course, yeah, looking at this, children doing chores and whatever, obviously we have to look at different age groups, you know, uh, um, working by imitation and being really wanting to do everything what the parents do is obviously still a certain age. A teenager is very difficult to move this way because then, then it becomes differently. But for example, um, I, I uh, try... Uh, uh, want to uh, share something which we do, for example, in Khartoum. Um I personally have never, never liked that children have chores like in first, second, third grade, like you have to water the plants this today, uh, this person has to do this, you know, and then you have a rotating uh, uh, um, chore. Schedule. Exactly, list. because mm -hmm. actually what does it teach the children? It teaches the children... I do my job because I have to do my job this week. But um, basically what it teaches them, I'm doing mine I'm not, and I'm not looking around what else has to be done. So basically we don't have this in Katu, but we know in Katu the school has to, the, school, the room has to look nice. The things have to be like this and, uh, you know, we want to be in an atmosphere really lovely. And add, so we talk to the children about what it, what this means, like the fl uh, plants need water, they need to drink, you know, the, uh, the floor has to be clean. So basically, we're going to say every day, now, everybody at work with the teacher together to make the environment beautiful, the one we want to have. So by doing this, they're getting an awareness for everything, for everything which is being done. And they won't walk later through life when there is a, p a piece of um, rubbish in the ocean and say, well, sorry, it's not my turn, you know, because today is not my turn to do this. But they're going to do it because this is what you do for the beauty and for the ethnical and the moral and for whatever else you do it. So we have to bit um, this whole kind of thing of, um, and of course, it's hard work for the teachers because there will be two children will never wanting to do anything and one child will ever do anything. <laughs> so, but this is really interesting because that's a challenge. And how do we make the community doing it all together? How do we get all the children involved to do it? You know, and then, for example, what we also do in Katu is on Monday morning, we, because it's a small school, altogether we have about 50 kids, we are um, beginning uh, the Monday morning with a circle and we're speaking a verse, we're singing a song and then we're doing a social game where all the children are involved and we're waking up the school and we are greeting the school Monday morning. And Friday, the last lesson, all the children have to do social score, uh, show, uh, social work on the whole property, wherever, not even in their grades, but everything together. They're cleaning up. And then what do we do? Then we do speak a verse afterwards. We put the school to sleep. 
So on Friday, we put the place to sleep and say, now it all looks nice. We can leave it like this. And Monday morning, when we come back, we wake it up again. You know, so you have this, this kind of feeling for and respect for the realm. And if you teach children this way, they, they, they take care, you know, and they are more open. They're more open for, to imitate and, and to be active and to help. So those are all kinds of little things one can do and um, um, to be obviously role models because we all have to do it as adults too. We cannot just sit there and have a cup of coffee and say to the kids, pick up the rubbish. Yeah, I love this so much and I'm realizing there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but we're going to have to wrap up in a minute. This made me think about and remember the importance of rhythm and, you know, a time and place and honoring um, energy flow or mood swings or the rhythm of the day or the rhythm of um, the seasons and that that, you know, somehow allowing the child to connect with the rhythm of things or the pace of things, whatever word you prefer, um, is a really important part of helping a child feel regulated. And when we look at kids who are diagnosed with ADHD, for example, and who appear to be dysregulated, it's because they're not in rhythm with their atmosphere. They're not in rhythm with what's around them or what's around them isn't working for their internal developmental rhythm. And I love how what you're talking about really um, honors the rhythm of, of a thing, right? The rhythm of a situation or of a social um, community or of nature, whatever it is, of mm -hmm. the school. Yeah, I mean, rhythm, it, it's, if you really practice a rhythm or habits in a really rhythmical way, you have very less discipline problems because discipline will be solved by itself, you know. A child who lives very rhythmical and always, you know, has his, his bedtime, his dinner, eating time, everything at the same time, uh, won't argue so much with you because it's a habit. It's in it. It will automatically do it, like brushing your teeth. So you don't need to constantly argue. So automatically your atmosphere is so much more peaceful um, in your house and you have less conflicts. Rhythm is a really strong thing. And this is, this is one of the things I've been very um, aware of as a, as a mother and also like a teacher and obviously now with the whole school. We completely underestimate this today. Um, and we live a... I mean, hardly anybody lives a rhythmical life. I mean, that's another thing. If you would observe yourself and write down for a week where you have been and how your day was and at what point, what minute you were eating or what moment you were doing this, my God, I think out of 10,000 people, maybe two will have the same rhythm, you know, will have a rhythm, a rhythmical lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so much of it comes down to breath, right? being aware of your breath and your breathing and starting with that very simple thing. Well, Svenja, this has been a really fabulous 56 minutes. I've enjoyed every second of it. I, I was so excited to have you on for, as I said, many reasons, mostly um, for me personally, I just love hearing your voice. So this has been really nice. Thank you for staying up so late to do this. Um, I ask everyone before I end the session to um, share if there's anything that you're obsessed about or you're focused on or you're really excited about right now, whether it's a book or an idea or a um, movie or a music. Is there something right now that you have really been enjoying that you want to share with people? 
Well, no, I'm just, I just uh, wish to everybody that, that everybody does a step more forward in really observe, really observe what is going and take the moment every day to do an observation, you know, because I think um, you will discover so many beautiful things in the world by slowing down and observing. So that's, that's something, but there's uh, nothing in particular. No, and for everybody it's something different, but I really think observation is one of the key things we need right now. That's good, I'll take it, okay. Thank you. And I will put in the show notes information about Katu. So anybody who wants to know more about your school yep. can look in the show notes and I'll have a link there. You have beautiful um, marketing materials. Whoever's doing that for you folks has been doing a great job with little videos and one really gets a great feeling of being at the school by looking at some of the materials that are available. So I'll put some of that in the show notes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Svenja, for being here. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. And a great view and everybody. Bye. This has been another episode of A Really Good Enough Parent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about A Really Good Enough Parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.com. Dot org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S dot org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. George loves Detroit.